I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Let me tell you about the Blue Cash Preferred Card from American Express with 6% cash back at U.S. supermarkets on up to $6,000 in purchases. That means you get 6% cash back on chocolate chip cookies, double chocolate chip cookies, and the elusive triple chocolate chip cookie. It's cash back, backed by the service and security of membership. Start earning cash back at AmexBlueCash.com. Terms apply. Hey, Kevin. Yeah. Guess what? What? Our schedule is changing a little bit. Yes. Yes. Why? Well, summer's coming. And? And uh, we need a break? I need a little bit of a break. I'm not going to lie. We are going to be going bi-weekly for mm-hmm. the next yeah, few yeah. weeks only. Yeah. yeah, and we'll come back in the fall and we should be at full foot. We're, we're, we're not disappearing. I mean, we used to do like one a month. Yeah. We're not going anywhere. In fact, we might actually be dropping some episodes in our weeks off this summer. Yeah, so. there's still a lot that's probably <laughs> going to be happening. We've got oh, that OJ uh, documentary on yeah. ESPN, and we probably will hear this summer about Adnan's PCR hearing. So there's going to be plenty to talk about. And we might launch a new show. We'll see. I thought we are taking a vacation. Anyway, we're going to be going bi-weekly for the next few weeks. Bear with us, listeners. We will be going back weekly soon. So if you want to keep up with everything that we're doing, you can sign up for our newsletter at Crime Right. Writerson.com. And of course, you can also support the podcast, maybe incentivize us to go back to weekly by doing a little shopping on our website through our Amazon.com link. Yeah, just go to Crime Writers On and click on the Amazon link. It'll take you to Amazon. You buy all the stuff you would normally buy anyway. Amazon will give us just a couple pennies for you doing that. And so if you would like to know what people are buying for the summer <laughs> on Amazon.com, here's Toby Ball with a list. Rebecca, roll it. Are there water wings on the list? I don't know. I haven't <laughs> heard of it yet. Sunscreen? Umbrellas? It must be. <laughs> roll, the, I, roll it. Flip-flops? Roll it! <laughs> Stomper Joe four-pack premium cotton no-show socks for women. Aoki large stainless steel pet claw dog nail clipper file professional grooming. DNA shift pro 50 Natural gut and brain probiotic and prebiotic supplement. 50 billion CFU, best for women and men. Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally other podcasts, and occasionally celebrity interviews, because today we're going to be joined by one of TV's biggest celebrities. I know you don't believe me, but I promise I'm not lying about that. He's also a cult movie hero, and he's also Hollywood's biggest true crime fan. So joining me now to show the whole world what us interviewing a celebrity sounds like is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. And if you haven't looked at the name of the episode, you have no idea who we're talking about. (laughs) And also on the line with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Good evening. And also with us is our favorite contrarian crime and noir novelist, Toby Ball. Welcome back, Toby. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So we talk about true crime and podcasts a lot on this show, but it's not only people like us who've been taken in by true crime's pop culture resurgence and the podcast renaissance. 
Straight-up Hollywood celebrities have also become obsessed with cereal. You know, Ewan McGregor famously wrote about cereal for Time magazine. Obi-Wan Kenobi did that? He did. And last year, VanityFair.com interviewed guests at the Sundance Film Festival about their theories of who killed Heyman Lee. Oh, I saw that video. Yeah. yeah, Enthusiastic opinions offered by Chris Pine, Alison Brie, Jason Sudeikis, Sarah Silverman. But there's one celebrity among all the celebrities who's possibly been the most hooked of all the famous people. Mm-hmm. You might know him as the man who stuck around for all 12 seasons of a certain television show. All 12 seasons. And if you're a certain age, you might know him for his breakout role in a certain 80s teen movie. He's also a screenwriter, director, and the author of a really, really great memoir. I'm just going to go ahead and roll the first part of that interview and let him introduce himself. I am John Cryer. I'm an actor. I used to do a TV show called Two and a Half Men. I also did a movie called Pretty in Pink, which I still get uh, many shout outs for. And that was done back in 1986. So so that movie's already come out? Yes, that movie has come out. Yeah. And I'm happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you here. You are an Emmy Award winning actor. You're a screenwriter. You're a producer. We have absolutely no excuse to talk to you at all, except for the fact that I noticed. No, no. But I, I did notice a few months ago go on Twitter that you talk about a lot of the same things that we talk about on our show, Crime Writers On. So I'm wondering if you could just fill us in on your interest in true crime, true crime podcasts, sort of the stuff that that got my attention that you were tweeting about. Well, I've been a true crime fan uh, ever since I was a teenager. I, I was of the generation that got Helter Skelter, that book, and and just that it scared the living crap out of me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and then I got addicted to Anne Rule's stuff, uh, Stranger Beside Me, and I've always really enjoyed it as a genre. Now, I, the last couple of years, I've been into historical true crime stories, like Devil in the White City. You know, there's actually it's a it's actually a fairly small subgenre because there's not nearly enough books to read. No, you're right. Mind. You're right. Yeah. You know why? Because they're impossible to sell to publishers. We actually looked into whether or not our publisher would be interested in a historical true crime and they were like, nope. <laughs> we're going to the wrong publisher. Wow, I get because like we only sell to John Cryer. That's it, pretty much. Yeah, He's yeah. the only guy who buys those things. No, no, I, I, Devil um, in the White City was a popular book, but it was written by an author who had become popular in another genre and then could write about whatever he wanted to write about. And you know, most of us who write true crime don't attain the crossover. John Krakauer also had the true crime book, um, the one about the Mormons. Th- oh, um, and I read it too. Oh, come on, you know, I read it as well. Heaven? No, it's something under, yes. un, under the banner of heaven. Under the there banner. Was, of heaven. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes, there yeah. were several books about the exact same incident, uh, <laughs> yes. actually. I think I read two of them. I was looking at your IMDb, and have you ever done a role that was based on a true person, a true event, that kind of thing? No, and I'd love to. I love watching those kind of things. I mean, there's always a real disconnect between the history of something, the, the reality of something, and the movie portrayal. And that has always, to a certain extent, fascinated me, but also really kind of bugged me because, you know, movies present such an altered reality that I am sure something that you've come across as authors in this area is that often criminals and the and the evil are just so banal. You know, they're just so every day that the sort of amplification that you get in movies just doesn't accurately portray what went down. I mean, every now and then I think movies get it right. Like I, there was a movie called Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer that I thought, okay, that feels like what it probably felt like. Right. But it's really hard to nail that tone. Have you ever seen the uh, movie that came out? I think it was produced as a television movie at first in the 80s. And we've talked about it on the show before. To Catch a Killer, in which John Wayne Gacy is portrayed by Brian Brian Dennehy, Dennehy, I think. Oh, yes. Yes, I do. I remember that. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Creepy as hell. He was terrific. He was terrific. Yes. Yeah. And and it sort of speaks to something that we actually talk about on the show. The sort of eras of true crime. There's sort of that 70s and 80s era where things were, I think you you talked about how Helter Skelter, you know, we talked about Fatal Vision, and and there was sort of a grittier, bloodier, more realistic portrayal. And then you sort of get into, you know, the Law and Order era. You know, of course, I'm a huge Law and Order fan, but there is a very stylized American style of telling these stories that it's almost like what we can tolerate as an audience versus, say, what they can tolerate in the UK, where things seem like a lot darker, a lot more crimes against kids, a lot more, you know, actual blood on their TV screens. Have you noticed that difference culturally over time uh, of how true crime is coming out in the media here in the US? Well, yeah, Law and Order was actually an oddly reassuring vision of crime because, you know, 
it was the aftermath. It was dealt with in a way that was pretty satisfying every week. I mean, it was a remarkable formula as TV shows go. And I loved Law and Order at the time when my son was actually gestating at that point, And I watched so much Law and Order with my son's mother that we were sure that the only noise he would understand would be that dun dun, you know, <laughs> at the beginning. Time to uh, eat. Time to eat. Exactly. Like the 60s and the 70s, we got the feeling that civilization was kind of out of control. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the 60s were sort of breaking down the rules. And then the 70s were just this wild, crazy bacchanal of horror. You know, we had Son of Sam in New York, and we had a, a serial killer named Charlie Chopoff in New York. Do you, you ever hear of him? Yeah, yeah. I grew up on Long Island, and so we had that. Oh, oh, so yeah. We had Joel Rifkin. Uh, we had we had like some yes. really like like bad serial killers. <laughs> really horrible, horrible stuff. And I think uh, the Law and Order aspect was sort of a reaction to that. It was a we need to feel like this can be tamped down and controlled in some respect. I don't know what the British were going through at that time. I I find that the British stuff is generally much more sort of personal, and we're a little more procedural. Right. We want to know there's a system that will take care of this. Or a science that will solve it. Yeah, yeah. Again, why why CSI, which was for all intents and purposes a science fiction show, uh, (laughs) because because there's no police department that has that equipment. There's nobody that, I mean, they turn around, they get these DNA samples, and they get them back that day you know <laughs> it's like no it takes six weeks I always, <laughs> you know? I, I always think um, when I look at those rooms like there's a lot of wasted space <laughs> You know, it's big, and it's like at a real police department, there'd be another, there'd be all boxes there or something like that. Yeah, even if they had all that, you know, the Univac computer in the background doing whatever, (laughs) just like, yeah, you know, the lighting is just like way too stylish. In SVU, they have the the TV monitors, and it's like, let me show you the PowerPoint presentation that I've made with all of the pictures of all of the suspects in this case. It's like, that's just not how it works. Now, you actually did appear on an episode of CSI, but amazingly, I can't find any evidence that you ever appeared on any episode of any of the franchises of Law and Order, which is unbelievable to me, considering that you are a hardworking actor of New York origins. Can you please explain that, John Cryer? I, I didn't realize this was going to get so confrontational. Uh, I, I How do you explain yourself? This is, this is very awkward and uncomfortable now. Um, well, actually, that almost came to an end this year once Two and a Half Men was over. Uh, Warren Light, who runs SVU and has for the last few years, asked me to be a serial killer on the Chicago PD uh, Law & Order SVU crossover right, right. episodes, which were fun, actually. I saw them, um, yep. Once at, we saw you on the show, we never would guess that you would be the culprit because that's just not the formula <laughs> but uh but at any rate we couldn't work it out just time wise unfortunately i've enjoyed svu for years and uh but no interestingly my dad was a judge on law and order on the og yep. law and order really? original recipe um, yep. way back when you know do you remember yeah. which which season which era he was like what who were the uh, cops on the era that he oh, was on oh gosh i think it goes all the way back to michael moriarty oh old school period, old I school old yes school. very old school i believe i'm not 100 percent certain but you know they bring the judges back every now and then they do, uh, yeah. Th- know, that's tough that because show. there's only so many things you can do with a line like overruled, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, it is limited. It's a limited palette for an artist. Dick, uh, you, I need but... some I need some, uh, some motivation. Can you tell me a little more about my character here? <laughs> well, no, that that actually, that does matter. Uh, you know, and the, and the good ones, the good actors who, who play the judges on the show, you know, they give it a little something, uh, even if it's very procedural and quick. But that's what you get the big bucks for. Well, you know, the great thing that I, I've sort of pulled from your memoir is that you have always been a, a working actor and taken pride in that, as opposed to uh, I'm going to get a big paycheck for this and then I'm going to take a couple of years or whatever. I'm looking for another star vehicle. You just seem to the movies were good. And then it's like, well, now I have to do some TV and now I'm going to do some stage again. I mean, do you take pride in the fact that, you know, you are a salt of the earth working actor? <laughs> Or does that hurt I, I, your feelings? What does that hurt your feelings? That, that does not. <laughs> you're not a lean, no, man. Salt you're of gonna... the earth. That you, are, that you are the day laborer of actors. That you are the migrant farm worker <laughs> of actors. How does that, how do you feel about that? Uh, no, I am addicted to working. I love it. I mostly have a great time doing this. And if given a choice between, you know, sitting at home reading a book or doing a job, even if I'm not necessarily the right guy for the job, I'll still take it just because it's fun, you know, and the challenge is fun. And I have, 
failed as almost as often as I succeeded. But what's nice is people kind of tend to forget the stuff that didn't work. And nobody, uh, you know, it's fun for geeks to talk about at, you know, at Comic-Con. But uh, by and large, audiences don't don't uh, don't hold the bad ones against you. I do want to go back to your memoir for a second. It's called So That Happened. It's very, very funny. It's very well so done. So That Happened. Yeah, but it's really well done. And I'm not like somebody who would say that if it weren't true. I would just be like, it was a very interesting book. Um, anyway, you actually... <laughs> so that's good to know. It is. It's, it's really good. I'm like, I can so that. that got published. <laughs> <laughs> so you actually opened the book and you are qualified to be on our show because there is a qualification is that someone has to have written about a crime. And you did because you grew up, you said, on 103rd Street in New York. Was that East or West Side, by the way, 103rd Street? That would be West End Avenue, so the West Side. But you certainly didn't grow up on 103rd Street in the era when it would have been considered part of you know the Upper West Side. You know, New York has sort of crept up and it's gentrification crept northward. So you actually grew up surrounded by crime scenes and you describe that in the book. I'm wondering if this ties to your your interest in, in crime at all. I don't know if it does. It was interesting because we grew up in an apartment building that was a very bohemian building. It was a lot of actors and dancers and we had opera singers and choreographers and it was a rent controlled apartment building. So that was where, you know, it was cheap. You know, at that point, it was still a neighborhood that was considered very dicey. But everybody left their doors open. At least we did. You know, my mom didn't lock her door. We had full run of the apartment building we were in as kids. We were just, you know, we would hang out with all the other kids whose parents lived in the building. So it, it didn't feel scary to me, even though we had people come in and steal our lamp fixtures, uh, you know, because we had these old. It was an old building from like 1918. They call them pre-war. And because they had old fixtures from that time that were, you know, they were brass, they'd been painted over like 30 times, you'd actually have like heroin addicts who would come in and pry them off the walls in our lobby and then leave. It was so ever-present that it wasn't all that scary. Right, That right. sounds like an Encyclopedia uh, Brown mystery. The case scary. of the missing light fixtures. <laughs> he also described shootings in the book. Yeah, there's not yeah. all yes. light fixtures. Well, no, that was a very specific incident. We used to have this guy who was our next-door neighbor was Mr. Green, who was very, very nice, and he had a high voice like this, and he would come <laughs> over, and he would drop off uh, little pots of oxtail soup for my mother. He'd say, oh, Gretchen, here, I, brought, I made you some oxtail soup. Um, what I did not know was that Mr. Green actually had a, a bit of a secret life in that he, uh, you know, he liked uh, making his oxtail soup and he also liked uh, hookers. So, <laughs> um, Who doesn't? So, yes. Yeah, so one night we hear this crack and my mom runs out into the little sort of foyer of our floor and sees a lady running down the stairs. She thought, well, th that sounded like a gunshot. So she called up the police and they came in and they found Mr. Green tied up to a chair holding a smoking gun. What had happened was one of the ladies of the evening he had brought home had decided to bring home her boyfriend uh, slash pimp, I don't know what, and he decided to roll Mr. Green, basically, and tie him up. And as they were tearing through the house, Mr. Green reached under his bed, gets his gun, aims, you know, from the hip, basically, because he can't release his arms, and shoots the boyfriend between the eyes with one shot. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> so, boyfriend's down, ladies were running out, cops are there, and Mr. Green is like, oh, I don't know what happened. Uh, and I have to say, that colored my interaction with Mr. Green forever after. Yeah, I'll take the soup. Thank you very much. Yes. yes, thank you so much. All right, so, so here's my bigger question. Is this where your justice issues start, or do they start when you're a young actor and Matthew Broderick keeps unfairly beating you out for parts. <laughs> yes, it's I'm fueled by rage basically. <laughs> you know, I actually um, I actually saw you in Brighton Beach Memoirs when I was in high school. If you can believe it. You, you wait, you remember that? I actually do remember it because I remember I used to see shows all the time and I remember going to see Brighton Beach Memoirs. I remember going and people saying is it Matthew Broderick and me saying no, but the guy was really really good and I looked at the dates and I was 1989. You were in that play when I saw it. So, kudos to you. That was a really good play. Nice job. Wasn't it a great, it was a great show. Thank you. Thank you. Belated. Uh, you, you took your time with that compliment. Well, she uh, yelled encore that day. Don't you remember? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, that was you. Yeah, okay. Totally. I remember yeah. that. Uh, that was that a great show. I mean, the first time I saw it with Matthew Broderick, it's like a two and a half hour show. It's long, but I didn't want it to be over. I loved Brighton Beach Memoirs so much. I thought it was such a great show. And uh, so when they were looking for an understudy for him, I was all over that. And that was my 
first big Broadway job was being his understudy. Unfortunately, the man has the constitution of a horse and was <laughs> never sick, never missed a show. One day he was 20 minutes late. I was like, oh, yeah, this is my time. This is my time. Wrong. <laughs> he shows up. You dick. Uh, you take so, the makeup off your face. Exactly. Yeah. Sadly, sad clown. <laughs> um, but interestingly, I got fired from that job, mostly because it was my very first job. I had a little bit of an attitude. When you're an understudy, you're expected to have all the lines down, you know, within a couple of weeks. And and I don't know if you remember that show, but it's a huge part. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. The, the part that Matthew had. And it was probably four weeks in before I really knew all the lines. And by then it was too late. They were just mad at me for, for <laughs> not toe in the line and they fired me but then it was a year later I had a movie coming out they asked me to come back and do the show and I you know sort of sniffled and said okay and, <laughs> and I came back and did it for like nine months or so and it was great it was a great great experience well, it, it, the funny thing is that show nearly kept you from taking this movie role that you're so well known for, which is Lenny from Superman 4. Exactly. (laughs) In the back of your head, are you amazed we've talked all this time and not said the word ducky? (laughs) Don't you get that like every freaking day? Yes, I get that almost every freaking day. I don't mind it because you don't, you know, actors don't do roles in the hopes that they will be forgotten. So, So I don't mind it. And I'm glad people really came to like that guy. I also love that people remember a time when I had a fabulous head of hair. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, it's one of the interesting things about that section of your book, and it it actually brought up something that, you know, Kevin and I have talked about on this show, is that you talked about how that movie was written with an alternate ending, and then you do have this nice section in your book about the importance of endings, not just for the story, but also for the audience. Can you just, like, thumbnail sketch that Pretty in Pink story? And then I'd love to hear you talk about sort of your philosophy on endings, like how a good story should end. Is there a formula? Is there no formula? Just what do you think about that. Well, I think endings have a lot to do with uh, expectations. And I, I really enjoyed the, the podcast where you guys talked about that, because because uh, in these crime stories, you're often telling stories that already have an ending. But you have to decide as a writer, how are you going to frame that ending? But I'll get back to that later. In, in, in terms of Pretty in Pink, Pretty in Pink was a very specific case where it was about a uh, an interclass romance between Molly Ringwald's character and Andrew McCarthy's character. The original ending of Pretty in Pink ended with her taking a kind of independent stand against the whole class system at her school and and going to the prom with Ducky, her best friend of all this time, you know, who's, you know, uh, obviously head over heels in love with her. And that was the original ending. What happened was uh, she shows up at the prom by herself. Ducky shows up. They walk in. They dance. The Moonlight dance together to David Bowie's Heroes. And that's the end of the movie. And you shot that. And And everybody went their separate ways. You thought that was the end. It's in the can. I went off and, and started shooting another movie. And then I get a call saying, um... They want to reshoot the ending. And what I did not know at the time was that they had done screenings of it that had gone just phenomenally well until one moment in the movie, which was the moment that she ended up with Ducky. uh, The audience actually started booing. Uh, And and, and I don't know if you've ever been to a test screening. Test screenings are usually fairly decorous affairs. People don't, you know, throw stuff. You know, they fill out the little cards at the end and they say, oh, you know, I like that. Or, you know what, I wasn't, I didn't love of that thing. But actually booing is a fairly... Uh, you don't have to uh, fill out a card. It's yeah. Yes, you don't have to fill out a card to actually boo. So the studio felt that the audience had really invested in the relationship between Molly Ringwald and Andrew McCarthy. Ugh. Okay, please refrain <laughs> from just making noises yeah. if Sorry. you can. Sorry. <laughs> uh, keep it for the end of, of this. At any rate, I think John didn't want to send the message that, you know, an interclass romance cannot work. Uh, because, you know, he he cares deeply about rich people. Uh, and he, <laughs> he wants you to have relationships with them. So, you know, we, we reshot the ending, and I'm happy with the way the ending works. The only thing that bugs me now about the ending is where this magical girl for Ducky came from, Christy Swanson, who sees him across a crowded room out of nowhere and <laughs> suddenly likes him. You know, I, I, I think the logic at the time was, oh, well, now he looks so good and stylish. Maybe that's why she's into him suddenly. They're throwing your um, character a bone. Yes, it's exactly. It's a Buffy the Vampire Slayer bone. I mean, you can't really complain about that. I mean, she was the original no, that, Buffy no, the Vampire No, Slayer. no, uh, no. Christy Swanson is lovely and a, and a sweetheart. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I no, it's not that. It was just it felt a we- oddly convenient right, at the end. Right. And then you, know? you give a little wink 
into the camera. Yes. You know, which is a classic moment that you improvised. Yeah. Yes, because it was kind of a joke between the director and I, uh, <laughs> because because I, I knew he didn't have to use it. And when he left it in, I loved it, of course, and the audience went insane. But I always feel a little cheap. I always feel a little trampy as an actor <laughs> to just, just you know, uh, just absolutely play for the audience, just mug. But I have no qualms with that movie. There are a lot of people that work on a movie, and they're all behind the scenes. And I can't believe that every day nobody said... Yeah, pork pie hat. That works with the vest. <laughs> that's, that's what we should do. At the time, the whole point was that he dressed like a lunatic. I had actually pitched a whole different style of dress to the costume designer, uh, Marilyn Vance. And she said, no, you know what? I want to go a different way. And the first time she put me in the later hosen, I was like, whoa, where is this going? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it worked. It worked, you know, because it was just, uh, you know, he had a style of his own. Didn't I mean, work Paisley's for Andy, though. And stripes. Didn't work, Didn't work for, Andy. for Well, you know what? Maybe it's for the best. <laughs> I think it's for the best. You know, if Blaine was who she wanted, did you really want to be with a girl like that anyway? Come on. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So you just heard our conversation with mega millionaire superstar actor John Cryer. I do have a question for the panel, though. John revealed there were two endings to his classic film, Pretty in Pink. And we've talked a lot about endings on this show. So, Laura, here's my question for you. Is Pretty in Pink a better movie with Andy ending up with Blaine rather than ending up with Ducky? Well, I think that's the ending people wanted. Um, You know, that's where you hope she's going to go, that she's going to ride off into the sunset with the rich guy. I think it would have been more realistic and felt a little more authentic if Ducky had been the one that she ended up with. But I think for the people that were watching this movie, when this movie came out, this is the satisfying ending that they wanted to see. Why? Because Andrew McCarthy was a teen idol at the time? I think so, yes. (laughs) What about you, Toby? Do you think Pretty in Pink would have been better if she'd ended up with her best friend Ducky instead of the rich kid Andrew McCarthy? Uh, no. <laughs> I, y- wow. You know, I, looking back like 32 years since I've seen it, it was really following Molly Ringwald and that was kind of get ready to harumph Kevin. That was her happy ending. And uh, There you go. Thank you. It's like a volleyball team. Uh, Toby just sets uh, it up, I spike it. Yeah, so I kind of thought that that was, I mean, not that I really was thinking about that kind of stuff when I was 16, but it seems like that was kind of a satisfying finish if you're sort of identifying with Molly Ringwald, yeah, which Toby's, I guess I was. Toby's right. Actually, it, it is Andy's story, Molly Ringwald's story. I am on, like, I was somebody's ducky, and so it was not satisfying for me. I was actually, in a way, surprised and pleased to find out that that was actually the original thought for the movie, was that she was going to end up with ducky. It is a much more bittersweet movie the way it's been done. But I remember sitting at a table in college with a bunch of people talking about this movie, and they were mad. They were pissed about the fact that it wasn't Ducky. Are you telling me that I married Ducky? Is that what I'm learning I, somebody right Somebody else is Ducky. <laughs> somebody else is Ducky completely. You know, I guess maybe people, different people identify with different characters. And obviously, I can't identify with Andy, but I did identify with Ducky as being, you know, the kind of person that's like who just was carrying a torch for his best friend. And just, you know, so that feeling that he didn't get that hit me in a, in a different way at the same age as the characters were than maybe other people did. I don't know. Maybe Laura, you might feel differently. You know, Laura totally had a ducky. There was some dude in high school that was in love with Laura. Yes or no, Laura? There, there was. There was. And I have to tell you that I was dating an older guy in high school who didn't want to go to the prom with me. And I went to the prom with the ducky guy. And then I dumped him, just like the movie. Wow, really? I know, yeah. Well, I never really dated him, but, you know, he did take me to the prom because my college-age boyfriend refused to go, and... So, yes. Did orchestral movements in the dark, (laughs) were they playing along when you dumped him? (laughs) No, I was I was pretty I was pretty insensitive. I think looking oh. back on it. Hey, hey, you know what? I had a ducky too. You did. I, yes, and I ended up with someone else too. That's just what happens. But I married somebody else's ducky. That would be my advice to women yeah. uh, going forward. The sad thing, Rebecca, is, is your ducky was thirty-seven years old. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, is this something I need to investigate? Uh, perhaps. No, no, no. no. <laughs> all right, all right. One restraining order is enough. 
Rebecca, actually, did I hear our dogs barking in the background? Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> so professional, right? I know. Well, that's what happens when you're in the basement. You know what we didn't do? It was nice that John Cryer didn't like, he, point yes, that out. Yes, he was very polite not to point that <laughs> he out. He was also, by the way, in a closet in his basement. But you know why we didn't hear his dogs? They why? were probably at Camp Bow Wow. Oh, probably. <laughs> it's a perfect place to take your dog for doggy daycare boarding. And for all of your furry friend needs, like if maybe you're doing an interview with, you know, somebody in Hollywood and you don't want your terrier to mess the whole thing up. <laughs> but, you know, if you go to Camp Bow Wow and drop your dogs off, they get to play all day with their four-legged friends under the care of a camp counselor who is certified in pet first aid and CPR. And, of course, when they come back, they're all tuckered out. They had a great day. You can do your thing. They did theirs. <laughs> That's what it's like. It's kind of almost like being married, right? <laughs> you check them out at CampBowWow.com slash crime and get your dog's first day free. It's a great deal. CampBowWow.com slash crime. And if you think you might like to own a Camp Bow Wow, you can learn about franchise opportunities at CampBowWowFranchise.com. Well, I'm going to scratch you behind the ears right now. Oh, it feels so good. Rub your belly a little bit. Oh, <laughs> get a little camp treat before I go to bed. <laughs> Dang. You know what makes people say dang where I work? What? When they look at my website and what I've done with it. <laughs> because the website we use at work runs Damn, on- Damn, Kevin. It works on Weebly. Back at it with the website again. I know. <laughs> it's so great because you don't have to worry about code. It's drop and drag. And you get great websites using great templates. And, you know, this is for people that, um, you know, weren't really thinking about computers when they were dreaming their dream. We have friends who do pottery, sell pottery. We have friends that uh, make jewelry, like really great jewelry. We have a friend who's a plastic surgeon. We do. They all need websites. When Todd was in medical school, he wasn't thinking about the difference between responsive websites and non-responsive websites. I hope he wasn't. Yeah. That's why Weebly is perfect for him. You know what I did at work today? I made a gallery. I dropped and dragged one tool from Weebly, put it on a page, put a bunch of photos. People thought I was f***ing Mark Zuckerberg. You're the Picasso of the internet. I'm like the grinder of websites. <laughs> you know, they're like, oh, can you make the, the photos fade into one another? I'm like, what is this, amateur hour? Of course you sure. can. Sure. It's because it's Weebly. It's so easy to use. It's easy to create and set up your own website, and it's easy to maintain. Join the over 30 million people who are already dreaming big with Weebly. Get started today for free at Weebly.com slash CrimeWriters. That's W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com slash CrimeWriters. Weebly.com slash CrimeWriters. Does that mess you up when I do that? No, good. Try again. Weebly.com slash CrimeWriters. Crime writers. Crime writers. All right. Now that you're done with that very professional, very smooth reading of this week's ads, let's go back to that conversation we were listening to before, you know, the one between us and John Cryer. So you were talking before of the, you told us the Pretty in Pink story about the philosophy around like framing the end versus what the end is. I'd love to hear what you think about that in terms of these crime stories and also in terms of just, you know, great films with great endings and the difference between, you know, what it is and how it's framed. Like, what is your thinking there? Like, what makes a great end of a story? Oh, gosh, it's tough. The whole thing is, is that when people see things that they expect are narratives that are not based on true stories. They have an expectation. They, they know there is an artist. They know there is a human hand. It's not like, you know, uh, somebody accidentally left a camera running and this thing happened, you know, yeah, <laughs> right, right in front of it. Um, they know that you're putting together a story. So they're expecting uh, inherently uh, a, a more artful ending than what we experience day to day in real life, which is one thing happens and then another thing happens and that's it. Narrative is totally a construct in our mind. You know, all there is actually is now, and we string it together in our brain to make stories. And those are very comforting to us um, because that's the way we relate to the world. But it's not reality, per se. Authors and podcasters and filmmakers all have to figure out, okay, what is the chunk of time that I want to tell, and how is that true to me? And, like, for me, 
the movie Brazil, I don't know, the Terry Gilliam movie, yep. had a fantastic ending, but it was absolutely harrowing and crushing because of the lightness and fun of the story that came before it. I mean, yes, Brazil was a very dark story, but it also had this comedic lightness because otherwise it would have been just depressing. To then have the ending that they had, uh, should I give a spoiler alert? Uh, I think the statute of limitations has passed on spoiling oh, the really? movie, so go <laughs> ahead. Go ahead. You can just say uh, <laughs> Well, basically, the whole movie is about this Jonathan Price playing this horribly repressed individual in this Orwellian, but very comedically Orwellian society. In the end, he finally breaks free and gets the girl and, you know, everything that he wanted. But the very end beat of the movie is he's actually been tortured into insanity. Mm -hmm. But to me, that was a happy ending because I said the guy was always free in his mind. Right. But so many people found that just an incredibly downbeat ending. But I felt completely the opposite. So when you guys are, are writing... You have a crime. You have, you know, when the crime happened, you know, sort of the ramifications of the crime. There was and a trial and then there was a there verdict. There was a trial right. and there's, there, is a, there is an inherent structure. Right. And generally. no one ever comes to us and say, you know, it would be way better if the rich kid were the killer <laughs> as opposed yes. to the best friend. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a really fascinating thing for me to discover writing the book because I, first of all, I didn't know what the book was going to be about. I knew that it, I wanted to make it sort of a journey of rising levels of showbiz insanity. But that wasn't clear when I first started. As it went along, I thought, okay, well, how is this a story? Because this has just been my life. I don't know how it's a story. It took me actually like assembling all the chunks before I realized what the actual story was. And that's weird to go, God, I don't I don't even know the story of my life. <laughs> it hasn't ended um, yet. It, yes, but it hasn't. So that's true. You, know, you had a very good point in your memoir, which, by the way, if you haven't said it, is very good. It's funny. Is it's it? insightful. It is. <laughs> it's, it, um, I don't trust Rebecca anymore, on yeah. it, by the way. Well, you, you were talking about endings, and you, you pointed out that in a movie or a play or a book that the story can survive a slow or bad beginning because it can redeem itself at the end but a really great story can't survive a bad ending because then the audience like you said feels cheated use use the example of like the godfather and if instead of like you know the door closing on michael and his compadres they're not compadres that's spanish yeah, yeah. is his, <laughs> they're his, Italian. Cap, his capos that's it you know if all of a sudden he opens the door and says no oh, come on in honey it's uh it's okay we're uh, we're gonna open some restaurants we want to fill you in <laughs> that would just ruin a, an excellent movie. Yes. But it was interesting because you guys had talked about how a lot of people had been let down by the ending of the first season of Serial. Right. And I had always looked at podcasts as more of a magazine than a novel. When you read a magazine article, you don't necessarily expect that the story's going to finish mm -hmm. there. And so it, it really is about expectation mm -hmm. more than the individual piece of work. You know, in Serial, because I was not familiar with the Adnan Syed case at the time, I was hoping that there was some twist to it that might make things better for Adnan or, or you know, might solve the crime in some way or, you know, give some closure. But that's not life. Right. You know, and I respected that about Serial. And I thought their second season was also excellent and was, a you know, they're not allowing their listeners to define the show. They're defining their show. But, yeah, you know, in terms of screenplays and stuff like that, the ones that I've written, I, I know what the ending is already. Right. A lot of writers just let it sort of organically pour out of them, and God bless them, because <laughs> I, that would be terrifying to me. <laughs> but that is, that is sort of what ended up happening with the first season of Serial. I mean, that really was, I think, season two was just constructed a little differently and approached a little differently. But the first season was very transparently, you know, some of it, obviously, a lot of the legwork had been done in advance. But there was decisions made along the way about what parts of the story to roll out when and then she got in touch with Jay and had that meeting with him behind closed doors and then she had that talk with Dawn at the end and that we didn't hear but heard about and I actually loved the way that that whole season was constructed and put together I remember the high points I remember the low points there are details about it that really you know stick out and if you look now there actually has been progress legal progress in the case so to say she didn't accomplish anything is just not true. And um, yeah. do you have feelings about that case in particular? Do you feel like you have a sense of, you know, whether or not justice was served? Yes, very much so. I, I feel Adnan Syed is innocent. I don't feel that there is any real evidence that stands up to any kind of test at this point. What had always not made sense to me was the way Jay's story had changed over time. Once the information that the, the police originally had the wrong cell tower information and that Jay's 
story conformed to that at first, but then they realized they'd made a mistake and his story then changed to conform to the new information. And then he did an interview with The Intercept where he gave a whole new timeline that doesn't match any of the cell phone information that was there. When you look at what evidence there actually is, there's just no evidence against Adnan Syed. You know, there's the argument to be made, oh, well, you know, I can't prove he didn't do it, but, you know, uh, there, there's there's no evidence against this guy. Throughout your career, you've been involved in the idea of trying to craft projects that get an audience, and sometimes you're successful, and, and sometimes you're not. What do you think made Serial such a audience success? Well, it was an old-fashioned radio show. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, it was a well-chosen case because it re- revealed a lot of things that were going on culturally. I think also, uh, unfortunately, the entertainment industry has done a huge disservice to the criminal justice system by giving – and I've served on juries a couple of times. And the impression Wait that, a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah. I have never been called for a jury. And John Cryer has served on a freaking jury. A couple of times? This is not cool. This, this, there's something <laughs> wrong. You live in the wrong place. You need to come place that, to some place that is rife with crime. <laughs> that's what you need. Right. Somewhere there's a guy in, in, in the jail yard doing chest presses and going, God damn, that John Cryer was like, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, res- I'm here for stealing because <laughs> <laughs> well yes the, the first case was a, a robbery case and uh, the second one was actually a civil case so there's people enraged with me all I across I see America. you ducky yeah <laughs> and that did actually that was an issue in both of the times in the New York case everybody sort of kept it under wraps until the very end when the judge came in after we'd rendered a verdict the judge came into the, the jury chambers and said oh my god I have to get a picture <laughs> um, but in the in the more recent one that I did. They've sort of made it in, at the Van Nuys Courthouse uh, here in Los Angeles. They've sort of made it their goal to make sure actors serve jury duty time. I like it. <laughs> and they, they have like a, they have a wall of shame. They have like it's me and Tom Hanks and <laughs> Steve Martin. And it's a, it's a great bunch of folks, actually. Um, all the people who they have forced to do jury duty <laughs> at Van Nuys. That being said, by the way, Van Nuys is actually a very pleasant place to, to do your jury duty. But, um, <laughs> could be worse. Yes, it could absolutely be worse and everybody's very cool. But that being said, having gone through the process a couple of times and seen well-meaning people who are good at what they do, who are competent, the justice system just does not in any way function the way that it's portrayed in film and TV. You know, we try to make it exciting, whereas the process is so flawed uh, on so many levels that I feel like, you know, juries go in with an expectation of the way that the world works and the way that the criminal justice system works that's just so not true mm-hmm. that it actually is a real flaw in the criminal justice system. Do you think that this new kind of, you know, true crime media that we are now getting, you know, you look at, you know, I think that one of the big things that Undisclosed has brought to bear more so even than what they've sort of shown about that particular case is, you know, I hear people walking around now talking about Brady violations. And there are yes. <laughs> sort of a, just a deeper understanding of what the burden really is on the state that they are not fulfilling necessarily. And it's just, to me, very interesting. It's happening at the same time as, you know, all of these civil rights issues happening in the country around, you know, police shootings. And it's just it just seems like this big confluence of things all going on at once. And I wonder, I look at true crime media like Serial, like that documentary we talk about all the time, The Staircase, like Making the, a Murderer, making a murderer yeah. like mm-hmm. Bill Rankin's podcast. Uh, breakdown, and I, I just feel like this is now the media that we've kind of been waiting for for a long time that could actually do something. And I wonder if, if if it's going to you think, and you probably see scripts long time before projects come out. Do you see that now bleeding into like mainstream TV scripts and mainstream productions that are in the works? Uh, not at all. Uh, no, <laughs> I think I think we've still got. Uh, yeah, it is disappointing. It really is because it's fascinating. It's fascinating to watch. Like like my big pet peeve when I was on jury duty was attorneys misstating evidence and they do it all the time. You watch a witness give a statement and you're sitting there taking your notes and whatever and then later on the attorney will completely, by the way both prosecution and defense would completely misstate what the witness said. Right. 
And it was all I could do to keep from going, huh? Right, <laughs> in, right. the, in the jury box. Um, there was also something that drove me crazy. In the last one that I was uh, on, neither the uh, representatives for the plaintiff or the state could pronounce the last name of the plaintiff correctly. Uh, so they would just just keep massacring it over and over. And this poor woman was just sitting right there right. as they just could not say her name. You convicted um, the wrong person. Exactly. This is terrible. But like I said, these were, you know, competent, well-meaning lawyers just mangling evidence. So Serial Season 2 is about Bo Bergdahl, who's on an important team. He suddenly disappears, leaving his post and leaving behind a lot of chaos. Is that something you can relate to? <laughs> that is a beautifully phrased question. <laughs> um, uh, yes, yes. Uh, uh, just uh, leaving carnage behind. <laughs> uh, um, when I was listening to Season 2 of Serial, that wasn't the first thing that jumped to my mind, but now that you've Mentioned it. Uh, a little PTSD. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Thank you. Well, actually, there was a certain amount of PTSD. It was weird to be in the middle of an internet shitstorm. Yeah, I imagine. Uh, it's awful. Charlie's fan base curdled at that time. You know, Charlie, at, at, at one point, he was Dean Martin. You know, he was a lovable drunkard, you know. Uh, <laughs> but uh, by the way, Dean Martin didn't really drink, apparently. It was apple juice. Yeah, uh, yeah, yes, yeah. apparently. Yeah. But that was the image that Charlie had. But interestingly, once he went off the rails... This weird subculture of just the people that loved him because of the drug use sort of came to the fore. And those were a remarkably hateful group of people who turned their hatred toward me because, of course, I'm the problem. Uh, (laughs) And and so it was it was weird to be exposed to that underbelly. Also, it was just kind of gross because he was a friend of mine who had a serious drug problem. And I saw so many people enjoying his fall and enjoying him making it worse all the time. It's a weird corollary to the Trump thing, too, because people love that he's this sort of icon of excess as well. And he's, you know, willing to say whatever he wants and he's willing to burn the whole house down. And some people revel in that and and really love it. And I it has always seemed gross to me. Do you have a relationship with Charlie these days? No. The Trump correlation is actually I was thinking about that a lot when I was going through your memoir and reading about you. You tell this really, really well-crafted narrative about how you are in the revival of company with Stephen Colbert and Patti Lapone and Neil Patrick Harris. And it is like this transcendent theater experience that like all these incredible, talented people have come together to do. Avengers Assemble! It's really unbelievable. It really is. And, you know, as a Sondheim fan, like I know how hard it is. Is, and you do a really good job describing like how hard it was just being and learning all the stuff you have to learn. And that's happening like concurrently to one of Charlie Sheen's. Really what they were was rallies. You know, it wasn't a performance that he was doing. It was, it was very much like a rally where it was just fans sort of showing up. And I actually felt at the time when, when Trump was here in New Hampshire, I, I actually thought of that comparison that just sort of like, I want to go see this in person. I want to go see this. Allegedly speaking truth to power, but this is a powerful person, not really speaking truth. That, well, yes, <laughs> exactly. But yeah, there was a certain element of sort of freak show. You know, the, the allure of seeing Charlie at that point was, you know, seeing somebody burn their own house down, you know, and it was gross to watch. And I was trying my best to keep going with my life. I didn't know if I'd have a job. I didn't know if my friend was going to kill himself. And, uh, you know, all I could do was every now and then I would try to reach out and, you know, Nothing I said or did meant anything to the guy, so there was nothing I could do. But you know, you also yeah. did something, accomplished something that's rarely been done, which is you were able to replace a lead in a non-ensemble show, you know, half-hour comedy, and continue the success. Again, this wasn't Dick York for Dick Sargent. This was, <laughs> I, I mean, this was a, a new character, and y- you have to move on. And the audience stayed with you. You were on the air for twelve years. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it was it was remarkable to be there on a day to day basis because they had to reinvent the show uh, in many respects because the whole dynamic changed. Uh, Ashton had a completely different set of skills, and actually, for those last four seasons, I was in the the writers' room with the writers. It was kind of exhilarating, scary, 
we had some failures, but we also had some huge successes. I feel like the funniest episode of Two and a Half Men ever was in our ninth, or no, our, our tenth season, sorry. <laughs> uh, it was a show called Four Balls, Two Bats, and One Mitt, uh, about a threesome. <laughs> you, can, you can do the math. But uh, but that was like, I think, the most fully realized episode of the show that we ever did. So, you know, it was it was a it was a great ride. But Alan stayed the same for the most part. And that's the glue. Well, thank you. Thank you. It was a great character. I would love to take all the credit. But, you know, any actor knows that you have to have the right combination of writers. Hey, those other and, people uh, aren't listening. You can take all the yeah, credit. I, <laughs> yeah. Well, no, you just you feel a little silly as an actor because, you know, I still have people say, so how much of that show did you make up? None. I made up none of it. <laughs> there were a group of really talented people, all of whom it was their job day in, day out right. to come up with funny things for me to say. Right. And they did it. That's one of the things I think is so interesting about people making podcasts. I mean, we make our podcast in our basement, so we're no one to talk. But, um, you know, who who sort of are critical of why did Sarah say this? You know, and, then, and I'm like, people don't understand, like, these shows are crafted. They are scripted. <laughs> they are produced. There are teams of editors. Well thought out. Well thought out. There's a a lot of research that goes into the journalism. She's not just making shit up, you know. And there's, yeah. you know, and there is, there's just sort of a sense that you can just show up and do it, and and you know, get paid. And it's just not the way that it works. My final question about Two and a Half Men related is that although you were never on an episode of Law and Order, although you were actually almost on one of the greatest TV shows of all time, Battlestar Galactica, which <laughs> blew my mind when I read about it. And you and you sort of chose the path of going for Two and a Half Men instead of going for Galactica. So my question for you is: I don't know if you watched it or not, but if you did watch it, when you saw how horrible the ending was, do you think you made the right choice? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I actually do have a certain amount of frustration when TV shows start like when I realized Lost didn't know where they were going, right. I was so mad. I was like, oh, you guys, seriously? You don't know? Oh, you dicks. Um, <laughs> That's the Abrams I did not, curse. He leaves after I, four yeah. years and they don't know what to do. <laughs> I did not feel that way about Battlestar Galactica. I felt that was, a, you know, the thing is that writers' rooms get an interesting thing. They They have sort of a meta understanding of the show that they're on. That's why, like, the Seinfeld finale made sense to the writers mm -hmm. but was dissatisfying to the public right because the writers felt like these people are awful we got to do a show where they finally get their comeuppance and it's like the audience never saw them as awful right <laughs> the audience saw them as them we enjoyed that they were awful because they were just exactly. like how we are exactly and it was it was really interesting to go through the finale of two and a half men because they had to honor two different shows mm -hmm. and they really went back and forth uh, about it and and in the end they ended up going totally meta with it and commenting on every you know possible aspect of it you know at the time that went over very well I could see how some people would get mad because it's like no just end the story the way the story began you know I mean the, the story began with Alan moving in with his brother because his he was divorced you know maybe the ending is just Alan finally getting his own house right you know <laughs> here's Zillow take a look exactly <laughs> show's over uh, <laughs> but like I said there's a thing that happens in writers rooms where you because you're aware of the construction of what you're doing when you're trying to end the story it sets you apart from what the audience is experiencing from watching it. Like, I totally respected the Sopranos ending. I mm -hmm. thought that was a great ending because to me, all those little things that were happening in the diner, all those things that you were you were hyper concerned about, you know, it's like, oh, God, is that guy who getting up to go into the bathroom? He's going to the bathroom because he's going to get a gun. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> it puts you completely in the place where this family is going to be. Right. They don't know where it's going to come from, you know, that this could all end very badly. Every little banal, you know, fact of life could end horribly in a moment. Well, Willow um, uh, parallel parking the car for 10 minutes. Right. No, actually, exactly. I, I think that ending was brilliant. And I think what you're saying about writer's rooms is interesting. I think some of the most successful sitcoms for me, especially in their heyday, are the ones where the writers do the things that honor the show and honor the audience, but sort of let the audience into their process a little bit. I think How I Met Your Mother did that really successfully. It's sort of meta, but the audience is part of the meta kind of, mm -hmm. of writing. But I'm wondering, what do you think is the best uh, writer's room on TV right now? What is your favorite thing that you are watching, consuming, or listening to? Something that we should be paying attention to. Okay. My favorite little comedy that uh, not enough people are watching is You're the Worst. 
Um, is that on FX? It may be FXX. Um, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> it's the FX got another channel oh, okay. that they put. I think they're even younger stuff, but it's a remarkable romantic comedy about these two awful people. Uh, there's a it's it's become its own subgenre uh, with love and uh, you know there's a bunch of shows that are about awful people coming together. Yep. But you're the worst. Does it in the most winning comedic fashion. So I love that. I love the new Radiohead song, Burn the Witch. All right. Uh, got this super creepy claymation video for it that's wonderful. <laughs> and loving my podcasts. Oh, that's good to hear. <laughs> that's, that's really good to hear. Um, I just saw an amazing episode of The Americans uh, oh, that, yeah, yeah. that I loved. Best show the, on TV. <laughs> the, yeah. The one where they have to break in to reprogram the computer and there the lady shows mm. up who's just doing the, the books at yep. night and yeah. there she yeah. has to, re- oh my God. The that was harrowing. Was that's yes. a, that's a turning brutal. point in the show, too. I mean, every week yeah. it's a turning point. It's a great, great show. Well, John Cryer, I just can't tell you how honored that we have been to get the chance to chat with you about all of this wide-ranging pop culture stuff. It's been really great. Well, it's been my pleasure, guys. All right, so let's move on to my favorite part of this podcast, a little thing I like to call the crime of, of the, the week. week. So, guys, it happened. I don't know if you care as much as Kevin and I do, but Fox has done the unthinkable. They have canceled my favorite new comedy of the season, The Grinder. The premise of the that show... Travesty! Travesty! <laughs> the premise of that show was that Rob Lowe was an actor who felt all of his years playing a lawyer on the soapy legal drama called The Grinder made him just as qualified to practice law as his real lawyer brother, <laughs> Fred Savage. The show was really smart. It was super meta. And mm-hmm. while we were big fans of theirs, we also had some fans on the set who loved this podcast. They would place copies of our books around the household set on the show. That was a great thrill. They even made up the case Flynn versus Lavoie and wrote it on the whiteboard that Rob Lowe was hiding behind. So... John Cryer, Rob Lowe, Fred Savage all have something in common. They were child or teen actors who made triumphant returns to the spotlight as adults, and this isn't always the case. So, panel, here's my question for you. Laura Bricker, what formerly famous child actor would you like to see make a resurgence today? So we were just talking about Pretty in Pink. Another movie from that time that I may have watched more than once or more than 20 times was Sixteen Candles. Mm -hmm. And the lead, Jake Ryan, who was the love interest of Molly Ringwald in that his real name, and this is going to be another mispronunciation, I apologize, Michael Schaffling. Mm -hmm. And apparently he never acted again. He lives in Pennsylvania with his wife and two children and is a woodworker. Um, And there are no recent pictures. But I do remember him being very attractive. I would like to see what he looks like now. He probably looks like faux Matt Dillon, just like he did back in that film. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's like (laughs) the reverse Harrison Ford. He was an actor who became a carpenter (laughs) instead of the other way around. What about you, Kevin? Do you have somebody that you hope uh, comes back? Yeah, you know, just somebody that I just thought probably had, I'm surprised didn't have a bigger career, is Ralph Macchio. You know, just, Ooh, I mean, he had, kid. yeah, I mean, the Karate Kid. But he wasn't he was, a kid when he played that film. Well, he was like I, in you, his 20s. He must, yeah, <laughs> he might have been. In the, and he was in The Outsiders. Crossroads. Yeah, but I thought he had more staying power, and I don't know if he was typecast or whatever. And Didn't he have like a couple of appearances on um, How I Met Your Mother? Yeah, as Ralph Macho. As Ralph Macho. <laughs> and then the, the, the kid who was the uh, the bad guy, yeah. who sweeped the leg, that kid was on too. You know, I just think uh, I would have liked to have seen Ralph Macchio. I would like to see him make a comeback. What about you, Toby? Is there a former child actor you would like to see make a comeback? Well, first of all, with Ralph Macchio, I always thought he was kind of like a um, Scott Bayo wannabe. Maybe that was. <laughs> his problem. <laughs> well, Joey uh, didn't really love Chachi, so he did have a chance. There we go. I guess I would not strain too far from what we've been talking about. I would go with Molly Ringwald. You know, she was a big star. You know, she was it. And then she just, she fell off the edge of the earth or something. I'm wondering whether or not she was really just one dimensional. Well, yeah. I mean, she played that one sort of Ingenue? Yeah, kind of, you know. Hey, she was on an episode of This American Life a few months ago, so there's that. Was she? She she had that one. Did she have a show, like, very briefly that I think I watched because I was wondering, like, what she was up to? And 
Yeah, like the whole been the plot one. revolved around one of her friends sleeping with another one of her friend's brothers. Yeah, something like and that. She was in the stand. Like there was a test with some cotton and whether she'd shaved her legs or something. <laughs> it sounded like uh, a Lifetime movie. <laughs> I think it, she it has sounded, been in a few Lifetime movies. It, it probably looked better in the script. John Cryer should probably take a little comfort knowing that Andrew McCarthy right now is, is not doing anything. He didn't make $75 million No, he did. Yes, exactly, exactly. I've always wondered, and I don't know if any of you have ever heard of these names, uh, little twin girls, Lindsay and Sydney Greenbush. Anybody recognize those names? No. No. They Did were they the play little... the Olsen twins? Nope. They played the little <laughs> twins on Little House in the Prairie. They they were the twins oh. who played little tiny Carrie Olsen. I was wondering what happened to those girls. Anyway, we should probably end it on that note. Toby Ball, if people want to follow you on the Twitter, interact with you there, how can they do that? At Toby Ball NH. And Laura Bricker, if people want to uh, berate you over dumping your ducky in high school, how can they find you on Twitter? <laughs> it's at Laura Bricker, L-A-R-A. And Kevin Flynn, if people want to commiserate with you over loving their best friend and never getting that, how can they tweet with you? We'll need a minute. <laughs> it's uh, at... Hold on. <laughs> it's at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to send me a tweet or follow me on Instagram, you can find me both places at Reb Lavoy. Our little show is also on Twitter at Crime Writers On. So send us your questions or comments in a tweet or send us a voice memo. The directions for how to do that are posted on our website, crimewriterson.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our newsletter, make a PayPal donation, or use our Amazon link. And if you love the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It really helps us out. Our the theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show was recorded in Studio C at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. The Kill Room in Our Basement. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Is this better? It's a little bit no. better. You're still a little bit low, but I think no, I can I... turn you up on my end, so just hold on. Don't worry okay, about is it. Is it better now? It's totally better now. And I also have like amazing audio editing skills, so I can always bump you in the mix, too. she got skills with a Z. She's got skills. Our, our show only sounds unedited. You have no idea what it actually sounds like when we do it. <laughs> <laughs> now, Kevin, I'm glad that you can be here for this. Your wife tweeted that you got a letter from the FBI this morning. Kevin, what have you done? That's probably my uh, FOIA request. Freedom oh, of information. did it come through? Are it, you getting it? Yeah, yeah. I'm learning all stuff about you that's not in the memoir <laughs> that the government knows. <laughs> yes, they have an extensive dossier on me. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like I'm like John Lennon. I'm a I'm a real danger to the nation. Well, yeah. Thanks for sharing that with uh, Mr. Cryer. Yeah, no, I shared it with the whole world. I, I tweet out yeah, those little yeah. brown wrapped magazines that you get as well. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Camp Bow Wow. Bark. Daycare and boarding for dogs. Bark. Everything is included. Large play areas to roam and play with friends, spacious cabins, and comfy cots, even live webcams. Camp Bow Wow offers the best care and is the place to go where a dog can be a dog. For locations and more information, visit CampBowWow.com slash crime. And if you think you might want to own a Camp Bow Wow, you can learn about franchise opportunities at CampBowWowFranchise.com. Good boy, Kevin. Sit, Rebecca, sit. Good dog. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.